Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Just uh, can I get a little mic check? Sure, let's do a mic check. One, two, three. Mic check. One, two, three. Okay. Happy so Thanksgiving. Exactly. Happy Thanksgiving. 2023, November 23rd, 2023. 23rd. Wow. That's 11, 23, 23. I know. That's auspicious. <laughs> Chinese auspicious here <laughs> with uh, American turkeys from who knows where. Yeah, I don't, I, I didn't see where it actually says where it's from. So, but uh, I'll, I'll let you know tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah. I want to know the provenance of these, uh, of these turkeys. <laughs> okay. Let's go. Okay. Yeah, so we'll just talk about Taiwan a bit, but then of course a lot about China, right? Business, CBD, sure, yeah, yeah, uh, your book, of course. But I think the book obviously it's, ties yeah. into all of that history, right? right? I yeah. mean, that's where a lot of the great content comes from. Yeah, and then anything else? No free roll up from there. So exactly, okay, beautiful. So and Mocha is going to join us here shortly, or? and Mocha is here. She is ready as always. I see her right under here. the She's table. That's her position. She knows it's about to kick off. So she's by the feet. <laughs> yep. She yep. is chilling. Okay. Beautiful. So, um, yes, I will give you a little bit of an intro and then we'll, okay. we'll go from there. Perfect. Sounds great. All right. Let's do it, sir. Here we go. Good afternoon and welcome back to another episode of Firelight Chats, where we broadcast the most super natural and compelling voices and stories from our Space Lab studio here in Da'an, Taipei, Taiwan. Our story for today begins in the United States of America, somewhere up in the Pacific Northwest, in the 14th largest state by land area. But with a total population of less than 2 million, it's also a state that ranks as the 13th least populous and sixth least densely populated of the 50 US states. Though it might be most famously known for its delicious potatoes, perfect for Thanksgiving, the official state nickname is actually the Gem State. Not to be confused with the profession of our previous guest, Dr. Gemstone Drew, but as a figurative expression that celebrates the natural beauty of this shining state of Idaho. Starting as a seedling from this fertile ground, from the capital city of Boise, our guest for today's episode sprouted, cultivated himself under the sun like Brigham Young, and like pollen on a powerful zephyr that originates in the west and blows to the farthest reaches of the east, he eventually found himself in the world's third largest country by total land area, the second most populous country on the planet, and in the largest financial center of this middle kingdom in the luminous city of Shanghai, where he carved out an impressive professional career. The Boise metropolitan area is also known as the Treasure Valley. And our guest for today's episode worked intimately with China's most treasured companies in the retail space, including one of Alibaba's most famous online shopping platforms called Taobao, which literally means search or searching for treasure. But 
as the ex-CEO of the largest foreign e-commerce and digital agency in China, this man has helped bring treasures to manifold others, including generating over $350 million in revenue for partners and clients and helping launch over 150 Western brands in China, including some of the largest and most famous brands around the world. At this rich and off-turbulent juncture where East meets West, our two stories also intersect, both of us having lived and worked in China. I in Beijing, he in Shanghai, up until the Lunar New Year of 2020 when both of us made our way to Taiwan for what we thought, like many of us, would be but a short respite. A global pandemic ensued. The rest is history. And like other gold card visa holders with Taiwanese spouses, three plus years later, we're still here. So with that, here we find ourselves in a similar situation, in the same place and headspace, eager to freestyle chat about innovation and business and whatever else profits to mind. We'll talk about his recently published book, Innovation Factory, and learn about the Chinese ecosystem, the companies, people, processes, strategies, and management systems that have been an integral part of the China transformation story. With this formidable wealth of experience, we'll dive deep and indulge in the stories, takeaways, and insights from this award-winning APAC executive who specializes in social and shoppable live stream commerce, branding, and market entry, and who also happens to be our esteemed guest for this latest episode of Firelight Chats, the one and only Mr. Ron Wardle. Welcome, sir. Thank you so much. And what a fabulous introduction. And I'm glad that you you know, did a little bit of homework on the state of Idaho. Exactly. And uh, one I know. Other, Idaho one other, doesn't get enough uh, attention, right? It doesn't get enough attention. However, you know, one of the other cool things about Idaho is, is the export into Taiwan. So Idaho is one of the Taiwan's largest agriculture trade partners. Really? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. So they have the state of Idaho has had a state trade office here for probably close to 30 years. Whoa. And very few people actually understand that. And so actually one of my good friends, uh, Mr. Eddie Yen, has been the the sole leader and director of this office for the whole time. Is that how you first got introduced to Taiwan? No, previous to that, I was actually doing some volunteer work for a church organization here for a couple of years. And once that kind of concluded after a couple of years, I was back at the university at BYU. And during our summer vacations, because of the length of summer vacation we have, I still needed to make some tuition money. So I came back to Taiwan to teach English during the summer. However, at the time I read some media and this is like, you know, early 90s that Idaho had just opened a trade office in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And so I contacted our trade office and they introduced me to this guy, Mr. Etienne, who just took the post his first year at the company. And I went in and been an intern for him for the summer. And that's how we got to know each other. And we've been friends ever since. Oh, that's so, interesting. Yeah. Okay. What other than potatoes? Oh, uh, 90%, 98%. No, actually no. potatoes probably on the, the lower end. Mm. A lot of the beef products or not only just straight beef, but we have beef intestines, right? Chicken feet, all these different components and maybe not hot sellers in the U.S. market. Right. But they right. export that to Taiwan. White peaches is actually another huge export into Taiwan and also ice wine. Ooh, ice wine yeah. as well. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of ice wine, we have a nice red wine blend here that you have brought 
for us to celebrate Thanksgiving. I don't know if we, we don't have a cork to pop it open right now, but, but it will be here with us in spirit. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> it should be a, a nice bottle for your Thanksgiving uh, celebration. Yes. So what about Thanksgiving? We are recording this on Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yes. Do you always celebrate? Yeah, definitely try to celebrate. And typically when you're outside the U.S., trying to celebrate on the actual Thanksgiving day, for example, it runs on the Thursday, right? So typically we'd always do either that Friday night or during the weekend, depending mm-hmm. on other people's schedules, just because, you know, in the U.S. it's a national holiday, but outside of that, it's not. So people want to have different celebrations or, you know, get togethers. It's typically going to be on the weekend. So. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And how difficult is it to get a nice American sized bird here in Taiwan? Yeah. From your experience. From my experience, previous in Taiwan, Costco would always have some for import, but it seems like this year they haven't. Some of the hotels will have it. But one of the biggest challenges, even though if you can procure a nice turkey, is having a oven to actually cook it in. That's the big one. Right. Exactly. Um, even in our building that we have. I have a nice oven in my my house and also in their communal area as well too, but they're not big enough like an American size oven for a, say an 18 to 20 pound, 24 pound bird. It right. just won't fit. So you'd have to carve it up and put it in different areas to actually get, <laughs> get <laughs> it in the oven. To chop it up beforehand. Exactly. So you're not going to have that perfect nice bird that comes out. So I know. And that's important. Yeah. Because where else will the stuffing go? Exactly. Yes. But I hear that you are in charge of a very important part of this meal. Yeah. Befitting a true Idahoan. That's correct. Yeah. So we got together some other American friends that they will be hosting the Thanksgiving dinner. And as you mentioned, you know, come from the state of Idaho, I definitely volunteered my expertise around potatoes. Mm. So I'm, I'm in charge of a couple different styles of mashed potatoes. So I will do a nice creamy mashed potato. Also do a little bit of a home style or country style Ooh, has nice. a little bit of chunks and stuff in there with a little bit of the the peel that'll use an air fryer that'll crisp it up and chop that in there as well too so it'll be a little bit mix and match of different uh, types of mashed potatoes so nice all right if people are not hungry yet <laughs> their mouth are not watering yet then i don't know what's wrong with you okay so yes happy thanksgiving to to you and to all out there likewise listening wherever you are so Let's actually start, as I mentioned from this outset, about our kind of parallel stories of leaving China at the same time. Can you tell us your story of how this came to be, why you are in Taiwan now, before we kind of pivot back and go deeper into the China business ecosystem? As previously mentioned, right, at January 2020, is Chinese New Year that year was actually, for the Lunar New Year, it was a little bit early compared to normal. And so January 20, 2020, I flew from Shanghai to Taipei for basically a 10 day New Year vacation. Reminds mm-hmm. me of the Gilligan's Island four hour tour, right? Four I'm on a hour. hour tour, right? So I'm a 10 day vacation. I just bring a little carry on laptop passport. That's about it, right? Gilligan Island. That's a great reference. Right. So, and uh, we've been here ever since. And it's, you know, once we came in, then COVID started flaring up a little bit like that. And then a lot of the countries just started shutting their borders down. Right. Right. And so at the time we didn't know where we could go, couldn't go. China had shut their borders. Taiwan shut their borders. U.S. had actually started, you know, banning in flights and stuff like that. So in COVID was just starting to flare up a lot of unknowns. So we just kind of sat tight here in, in Taiwan mm. for a period of time. It was, you know, we're, I think a lot of us were thinking is probably going to be maybe a 30 day, 60 day, maybe 90 day at the max that we'd have kind of be kind of stuck in here. Especially but, as Americans, right? Because right. on U.S. passports, we have 90 days visa free. Right. So you're in that same situation exactly. as well. Yeah. 
And the government at that time was announcing these sudden impromptu one month extensions. Correct. Right. That wasn't very sustainable. No, it wasn't because it was like you'd have an automatically 30 day rollover. So it was hard to plan anything long term because you didn't know, are they going to renew this again? If they didn't, then we'd actually have to leave. And with the closing of the borders, unless you had a resident permit, you couldn't get back in anyhow. So if you left, you aren't going to get back in. The good thing is Taiwan government, they recognized the need for their citizens, but also the people that were actually on island at the time. And they continued to roll those over for a lot of folks for quite a long period of time. And then there's also some other programs that they help facilitate, you know, like this gold card program that we're on as well, too. The gold card office, Taiwan government, I think they help facilitate a lot of us in this situation to quickly apply and get approval for those as well. Yes. How did you find out about the gold card? Interesting question. For my time I spent in Shanghai over 15 years, I was uh, heavily involved with the um, AmCham in Shanghai. And so I knew the president there and I just, hey, do you know the AmCham president in Taiwan? I just have some questions. I, how do we navigate what's going on here? And so right. they introduced me to AmCham Taiwan and then just kind of put me in touch with everybody there. And they introduced to some other fellow constituents within the, the AmCham chamber itself. And they actually introduced the Gold Card program, but it wasn't widely available or even advertised, you know, Right. Most, most folks didn't have any idea it even existed. The website so. was still very much beta. Yes. Yes. Great UI. <laughs> with with the typical Taiwan UI for this. But good thing is they have upgraded that, at least the website part of it. And it's very robust, but it's also very super informational as well, too. Mm, yeah. That allowed us to be here for at least three years. Right. We're like in the exact same situation. We came at the same time. We're both on our second gold cards. Yes. Is that right? You're yes. On the- I just renewed for second gold card as well, too. And it was a very streamlined process as well. Yeah, the, the gold card programs continue to evolve and they're trying to gain some more traction, you know, globally to attract even more foreign talent into Taiwan. So Right. And we have been here since that time, both of us. Uh, we only met just recently through a gold card program right. at the TCCF, the kind of arts and creative festival for film and other other things. That's so. right. I think they're trying to get, because of the number of gold card members, they're trying to get more meetups or some type of events that we can all kind of, because it is very scattered and they have basically a full database of everything, but people, there's not a group or community that's actually built around the different either categories or around the whole program itself. And I think they're really trying to enhance that. And so far I've, I've seen a lot of improvement mm. on that. So, okay. So you mentioned this four hour tour, right. uh, <laughs> not on a ship, but uh, on a plane to Taiwan, to right. this little larger Island than the Gilligan's Island. Sure. What does that mean about Shanghai? You were living in Shanghai. You just left an apartment and all of your belongings there. Yeah, I had been in Shanghai since uh, 2005. So that's close to 15 years living there. And, you know, when I came, obviously I brought, as I mentioned earlier, just a a little carry-on suitcase just for a 10-day vacation here. And so, yeah, everything was there. We just kind of left everything, obviously, you know, as we were kind of locked down here, waiting to see what's actually going to happen if we could get back in China. I was very adamant about not giving up on our apartment there. My wife was like, just give it up. Let's move on. We're not getting back in. I I still had faith in the system that we'd be able to get back in at some point fairly quickly. And after 30, 60, 90, 120 days, pretty soon we're on, you know, eight, nine months into the process. And uh, finally, I just had to pull the trigger. And, you know, luckily I had a a very nice Taiwan friend that was still based in Shanghai with his family. They actually helped pack up all of our stuff. 
Uh, had you been in up. that same apartment for 15 years? No, that okay. one had been in there a little over five years, oh, but wow. still five years. That's a long time. Uh, he accumulated a lot of stuff because I lived in like three different places there, about three to five years each, sometimes a little bit longer. This last one was about five years, but you, you know, you bring a lot of stuff and then you have a lot of stuff. And so, yeah, we asked them to, you know, only the essential stuff box up, send back to Taiwan. The rest, we just said either take it, give it to friends, uh, donate it away, whatever you need to do to kind of clear things out. So, oh, wow. So you held on to that for like eight, nine months. Right. Yeah. Oh, no way. Paying rent. Yeah, I got to pay rent can... there. And then I was paying rent in Taiwan as well, too. So you had double rents going. So, But you're pretty lucky, though, you know, because there have been quite a few horror stories mm. of people in a very similar situation, including a lot of friends of mine and people from the university that I was teaching at. They couldn't go back into their apartments because, right. you know, the pandemic became very serious and they were locking down communities. Mm -hmm. So you were able to get someone in there. It was fine down in Shanghai. Yeah. So at that time, they hadn't started locking down the community itself. And the way, you know, Beijing and Shanghai, all these like community property stuff, they're actually fenced and gated. Mm -hmm. So if where Taiwan doesn't actually have that type of system in place, right? right. So they, if they want to lock the, the main gates, it's tough to get in or out. Exactly. Um, so and pretty much all the communities, at least in Shanghai, and we lived in, I lived in the Jing'an district, all the places like that, whether you're in kind of an alley type of apartments, they'll have main gates to get into the place or the apartment high rises, those are all fenced and gated as well too. Right. So Jing'an district up in the north of Shanghai. Yeah, that's probably a little more popular, more affluent areas. Obviously the main financial center is on the other side of the river over in Pudong area is right. the main finance stuff. But uh, yeah, the old Pushi area and also the Jing'an is probably the most famous. Okay, so you lived there the whole time. Yeah. What is Jing'an like? How was your experience there? Well, early early wise? days, it was, I wouldn't say it was rough, but it was not as nice as it was after we you know, finally end up departing. But they also have another area. It's really nice and quaint called the French Concession, just mm. right next the one district next to there. Is that the Xintendi? Close to that. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, Xintendi was a newer area. And then the French Concession is right. It's the next district over, basically. But the Jing'an, it's always been more foreign friendly for quite a long time. So it's always been a little more affluent. Um, you have all of the, you know, like the Nanjing West Road has all of the high-end malls, department stores, whether it's uh, Louis Vuitton, Hermes, all the you know high luxury stuff are all during that Nanjing Road, which is in the Jing'an area as well, too. So let's rewind a bit. What brought you to China originally in 2005? Five, yeah. So at previous that I was actually working for HP and we were going through a transition and they were opening up a lot more things into China. And when I was at HP, we were working on a bunch of different services for the China market, you know, converting a lot of the resellers or service providers we had into, we call HP Blue Badge, which would be like an HP service center. And we were in the, the printing side of things and HP services, so services and printing. So we were doing that part of it. So we're setting up these HP Blue Badge centers in China during the time. And so there was an opportunity actually to, see the growth of the China market at that time is still very young. And it was kind of a wild west during 2005. Not a lot of infrastructure. It was a cool place, very inexpensive, very chaotic with busing and transportation. A lot of the subway stuff hadn't really been put in yet. There's only like one or two lines in at the time. And it was like super crowded. That's crazy. One or two lines. Yeah. What it was is the it right, like now? The, oh, there's like 18 or 20 lines, maybe <laughs> exactly. even more now. It's wow. So you've seen a, a huge uh, progress there. But at the time, you know, we did that. And then I had uh, another Taiwan's friend that had just started kind of a digital agency. They were doing some graphic designs, doing websites. This is, you know, pre-e-commerce for a lot of folks. Right. People just wanted a dot com. 
they wanted to put their website up and kind of mm -hmm. showcase. So we were busy building websites for not only Western companies in the US, but also for Western companies in China. So we worked with a lot of the agencies, right? The WPP agencies, where the Ogilvy or Group M, you know, we would be their contract agency to do all these websites. So we were just okay. busy doing digital websites for not only Western brands, but also for uh, our US brands in China as well, too. So how did you transition from there into this largest foreign owned uh, <laughs> digital agency and e-commerce? commerce kind of solution company. Yeah, as as that was kind of, you know, continued to build along, there's two main events in China that really helped propel them to the bigger international stage. One was the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. Yes. That opened the door for a lot of folks and foreign companies and stuff to come in. And previous to that, they just barely joined WTO in like 2002 or 2003 or something like that. So there was some promises on the table that they would, you know, continue to open markets and obviously then Olympics came and right after that in 2010 was the Shanghai World, World Expo. Expo. World yes. Expo. So, and each country had their own pavilion within this expo. So the U.S. had a pavilion there and they had a bunch of American brands that were represented within this American pavilion. And friend of a friend introduced us to some of the directors that they were kind of running this. They wanted to sell some products online. At the time, we were helping some companies do some Taobao-like marketplace type of activity and selling e-commerce. Uh, this is before Tmall was actually Tmall, just a Taobao business center, as they called it. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we helped with the USA Pavilion. We got the products online, started helping them sell. And from that, there was some other folks from that pavilion that ended up wanting to say, hey, how do we bring more American products in here into China? So we were one of the contract agencies helping helping them think about how to navigate the market, how to bring brands in, and it just slowly evolved into, you know, we end up bringing a ton of different U.S. brands in. We were in the Taobao Business Center for quite a long time until they transitioned to Tmall, and then we played in the Tmall, then the Tmall Global, which is all the cross-border stuff. So we continued to build up our brand portfolio and also expertise in the market right from the very beginning. Oh, wow. And the transformation, obviously, in China Digital, it's just, you know, it's been well-documented, but in the West is still not very well understood, but everyone talks about how three to five, six years ahead of the West, as far as digital capabilities, social commerce, everything, which is still true today. The West is slowly catching up. You see guys, everything from like Timu being jumped on the West. You have Shein, you have AliExpress, you have TikTok. Those are all Chinese type of social commerce platforms that are moving very quickly and they're dominating mm. the West right now. So we were firsthand in that experience on the China side. And now these platforms are you know, overtaking a lot of different areas in the West very quickly. So did you join the team at that time or did you guys kind of start your own... Yeah, I joined the team at the time. They tried to get up and going. They contracted with us to do, you know, obviously some web stuff, some e-commerce because we had the capabilities, some logistics things that we were helping with, but they didn't have the overall personnel to actually really make this. So we just kind of got absorbed okay. into their company for it, even though we didn't start the company itself, but we were the main drivers and we're the ones actually did all the work and made it work. So right. <laughs> at the end of the day. So. so did you join directly as a CEO? Yeah. Or? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Started to lead it. Yeah, right from the very beginning, yeah. Wow. So what were those early days like? It was definitely the Wild West. Yeah. Um, even working with, you know, Alibaba on this because of the Chinese ecosystem. Again, there's no T-malls. We wanted to open a store. All the documents we had to do, we had to actually hand deliver from Shanghai down to Hangzhou office. And this is before Alibaba had their own campus. There are buildings scattered all around Hangzhou for different Alibaba right. type of, uh, so you have to go to one department for a finance thing. You have one for import regulations. You have one for all these different uh, store approvals. And each time there's had to be some benefit given with the 
different applications you have to give in there. So mm, exactly. So yeah. <laughs> so Taobao was the original one. That was a C two C platform. Yeah. And then Tmall was a B two C. It's a B two C. Yeah. Taobao carved out part of their system. It's it's called the Taobao Business Center. Taobao Shangcheng. Okay. Right. And that was the precursor to Tmall. And mm. so then they broke Tmall out, which is completely B2C, which is only brands right. um, that can sell in there. We don't see that in the West anywhere at all. Right. Other than companies or brands.coms, that would be the equivalent of it. Yeah, exactly. Could you paint a picture of how that is then for maybe people who don't understand the Chinese market, how these kind of platforms like Tmall kind of look and function? Yeah, I think first of all, that just backing up a little bit, we work with a lot of brands want to come in and they've been used to the Western side of things saying, I have a .com, I want to set this up in China. And we like, it doesn't work that way. Right. Let me explain I need a why. website. I need my website. I said, first of all, you're not going to drive any traffic to it, right? Because of the way Chinese digital and e-commerce is set up. So you have folks like Alibaba, Tmall, JD.com, not only just WeChat, um, now you have TikTok, which is the Douyin portion of this. Mm -hmm. um, those platforms have garnered number one trust from consumers because there's a lot of consumer protection all baked in there. Payment systems all baked in with Alipay, WeChat Pay, things that you don't have to think about in the West. So having a marketplace that's fully trusted, but it's fully backed by the platform, tons of consumer confidence and trust, whether it's a brand selling or individual selling, Alibaba is actually backing all of that. And all of your funds, every time you pay for something goes into an escrow account, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so until you get the product, you're 100% satisfied with it, then that funds released to the merchant. So there's always a consumer protection point in there. And so that's one of those kind of education things we have to do with brands. There's also the real name verification as well, yes. right? In China. Yeah. So mobile numbers have that. Obviously, all the stores and documentation have to have real name. You have trademarks associated. And there's quite a lengthy process to actually open up what we call a branded flagship store in China. It's a little more streamlined these days, but back in the day, you had to provide so much documentation. Not only do you have foreign trademarks, but you have to have Chinese trademarks for that brand as well, too. You have to be the full owner authorization. There's just a ton of paperwork that needs to go through to be verified. So that way, when they put you on the platform, because they're guaranteeing that anything you sell to the consumer, number one, it's authentic product. Uh, it's a real product. It's from the brand, right? And it's 100% guaranteed. Mm, right. So I think Taiwanese listeners will understand this because we have Shopee mm -hmm. or Momo, PC Home or things right. like this, right? Which are very similar. So these big brands, they have their own kind of flagship official store on these different platforms. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Right. And that's the Tmall. And JD has theirs as well, too. So JD is a little bit different than uh, Tmall, which is a complete marketplace. Uh, JD's a, we call one P seller, which is like an Amazon, but it's also a 3P marketplace where you can open your branded flagship store. So they have both models in place where Tmall is just a straight marketplace. And you work with all kinds of different size companies. Yeah, we work with some of the you know largest ones down to some medium sized companies as well, too, because you have to have some scale to actually get into the China market. You know, we worked with everything from Harley Davidson, the Victoria's Secret, Smuckers, Samsonite. I mean, I can go through a whole list of different Ocean Spray, right? All big names in the Western world. So on it nutrition. Yes, on it well. nutrition with Joe Rogan. I see they're doing a bunch more things with Aubrey. Aubrey Marcus, Marcus right? yeah. as well too. So we really tried to push that as well too. That was a nice, I would say a little minor brand in the market and is very niche for us as well too. So our number one seller of all their products we had there was actually the melatonin. They have a lavender melatonin. 
Wow, interesting. And that ended up being our number one star product, even though they have a, you know, they're a focused brain factor and they have, you know, protein powders right, and all these different mushroom. things. All these different products. Our number one seller was melatonin. Why do you think that was? I think they just resonated. Price point was nice. It had nice flavor. It was actually really effective. And the size wasn't too large. And it was directly from US as well, too. And it was a lavender flavor. So it really resonated with the consumers. And we really targeted the female demographic. Demographic what we were doing because we were working with a lot of other beauty brands in this space. So we had a huge database that we'd remarket and we'd actually co-brand a lot of the marketing campaigns with this product. So if we sold mm -hmm. a beauty product for outside skin, so like, but you need good sleep. So here's a sleep product that goes with that. So that's oh, how we really try to, you know, utilize all of our resources for these brands and try to co-brand things. So when a company like Onnit comes to you, how does this process work? How do you get started? Do you build a team to kind of focus on them or how does that work for getting them into that kind of market penetration? Yeah, typically when we bring any of the brands in, whether it's, you know, Onnit or any of these other brands, we always look at the market demographics where we have market penetration, but we also do a very good data set and scraping from the platforms to see where their niche is because they need to have a real competitive advantage mm. or we call it an unfair competitive advantage to be in the marketplace because otherwise you're competing against brands from France or Italy or South America, right? I mean, there's a lot of different brands in China. And so when you come in the market, you have to have something to very build a, a moat around it in a sense to get in the marketplace. So we always do data set, data scraping and stuff like that, do market study and really try to carve out a niche where they can actually make a, a dent and then identify the demographics where they are. And then we start working with the platforms itself, for example, like Tmall or Tmall Global, work with all their category managers to find out where they can actually fit in and how much resourcing they can provide from the marketplace site itself. So. We come in with, they have a social plan, which is we call outside of the marketplace traffic, but also within marketplace traffic, we have live streaming. We do all these like uh, market strategies ahead of time and we bring it in, we present it to the platform, platform. Okay. and get the platform to give us buy-in on it, mm. right? Once they've bought in and said, okay, if you guys do X amount of you know, market spend, but also drive traffic and do sales, we'll give you even more resourcing and more traffic for different campaigns. The Tmall and China markets really built around campaigns. So you have to have a star product, but you also have to be able to sell products. Any one store will have one or two star products that drive probably 80% of your revenue is 80-20 rule, right? So okay. you gotta have a product that's gonna be resonating. And anytime they put you in a campaign anywhere, they guarantee they're gonna sell. They can see the history and what it's gonna sell for because the real estate on your mobile phone is pretty small. Yeah. So if one of the representatives in the marketplace put you into a campaign, they give you real estate on that screen. If it doesn't sell through, then they don't get their numbers either. Right. So it's kind of chicken egg. You gotta get your sales up. You have to meet the requirements. And once you do that, you get invited to a lot of campaigns. And then it's up to yourself and the team because when we bring a team in to do this, you know, we have not only part of, you know, we can utilize some of the logistics teams. We have a finance person needs to be involved. We have a couple different graphic designers. You have a store director, you have a store operator, you have customer service. So each one of these stores is like, even though you can utilize a lot of carryover resourcing, you have to have dedicated resourcing from these guys as well. Any one brand to store will have between five and eight people dedicated for it with another five to eight people as, as uh, leveraged resources. Okay. And you know everything ships you know, 24 seven there, seven days a week, uh, nothing ever stops. Customer service is usually from 9 a.m. till 11 p.m. every day, Right. seven days a week. There's no stop about that either. So these employees are direct employees of the company. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this is excluding logistics? No, with like logistics. Oh, really? Oh, so yeah, the, okay. the last mile logistics, depend on what platform we're on, they'll be handled by the platform itself. Mm. Um, so we won't actually in charge of that part of it, but we're in charge of bringing products into either the bonded zone or direct commercial import in, into uh, China. For this 
part of it, but then last mile delivery is all done by third parties anyhow, but they're all super integrated into the platform. So at any, once you order something, you can see real time, anytime that it's been processed from the warehouse to delivery, it's out on delivery. It's almost like waiting for your Uber to show up. You can kind of see where they are. But right, same right. thing with delivery. You can see exactly where they are anytime. So it's pretty advanced. Yeah, exactly. So what are some of these stories, these case studies, maybe some of your earliest kind of success stories? Very interesting. I wouldn't say probably the early success story. I'll give you two. One is the NFL. We ran the NFL merchandising shop there. And so one year when they have this big 11-11 or singles day type sale, mm. what we did is because the sales actually start that midnight 1201 on 11-11. Okay. Okay. So we had pre-sales, you have a different thing. So what we did is we dispatched our own logistics last mile delivery for any of the people that were ordered within Shanghai. And so we did at 1201, we contracted with a, a local service provider to do this with our own staff, you know, cause they work all night long just because of the the nature of the, the work culture, the work culture. <laughs> yes. And it's, and it's 1111. So, right, right, right. This right. is early on before it's a little bit more commercialized now, but anyone that ordered in NFL products, we'd actually hand deliver it to them. And we, wow. we, we documented the whole thing as well too, right? From the time they we received the order, our team was like cheering saying, we got this order for, for example, a new England Patriots jersey, right? Oh, wow. And a hat, kind of a set we were doing. So they would take that and then we'd have the camera crew at the warehouse picking, packing, preparing for shipping. And then we went along, the camera crew went along with the uh, order. All and the way and they, deliv they delivered it within about 30 minutes after the order was placed. <laughs> Just because it wasn't far from the, it just happened to be not too far and there's no traffic. So with about 30 minutes of ordering at 1230, I think it's like 1237 or something, we actually made a delivery and this and documented the whole process and put it out on social. But this was, you know, 2013, 14 at the time. So it was still really early in this content marketing type of thing and right. video commerce type stuff. But at, that went, you know, I wouldn't say viral, viral, but it got a lot of attention. And so some brands started doing something similar like that later on, not just because of us. We saw some other people doing this outside of 11. Then we thought it'd be a good idea. Yeah, you right? mentioned, I think in the book, kind of a, Taylor Swift method. Yeah, yeah, that's what she does, right? right I mean, right, she shows right. up people's uh, weddings, birthday parties just out of the blue. And it's like, she yeah, documents it and people like repost it. It builds, you know, brand awareness. And at the time, you know, even now NFL is so small in China, no one really knows what it is. Right. But the core fans, they love it. And once they got this stuff in such a, a very streamlined time, they were so happy and they, yeah. And they promoted it like crazy. Like I said, it went kind of mini viral for a while there, but it was a, it was a cool experience. And we did something similar to that with uh, Harley Davidson as well too. Okay. Uh, so we weren't selling motorcycles. However, we did sell motorcycles during an 1111 project. 1111 has this big um, national gala they do. It's yeah. televised. Didn't Jack Ma like uh, do some crazy performances at? Yes. <laughs> so this is this is where like whether Harry Styles, Taylor Swift, they perform at these as well too. Yeah. Uh, they invite these big international. This is like a you know like a Black Friday celebration called Singles Day, but they have this huge gala. But times put hundred. Yeah, and it's advertised <laughs> nationwide because everyone's part of this. So one of the promotions we had, and we coordinated this with Tmall, is we had ten Harley Davidson bicycles, or sorry, motorcycles right. that they brought on. And this is when they first launched the China live stream and Taobao live stream, and so called "See Now, Buy Now" type of event. They were just kicking off, and so they had the motorcycle on stage with guys wearing his Harley stuff. But they have other products and different brands around there doing stuff as well too. But we had ten bikes that were on special sale price, and they. Sold within like three minutes, right? 
It was as soon as 10 they put bikes. It, yeah, 10 bikes. One of the sportsters or something like that. They were about, I'm going to say about 45, 50,000 US. Oh, okay. So they so, were like cheap, cheap. That's um, a lot, especially when you're buying over the internet. Yes. And they were right. sold out immediately. What about these NFL products? Were they also kind of high ticket? Yeah. I mean, overall, yeah. If you have a jersey, t-shirt, hat, football, right? Uh, well, some footballs or the Rydale helmets. A lot of people bought those just for collection purposes, jerseys and stuff. We were combating, continue to combat all of the uh, knockoffs or the the fake products in the marketplace as well too. Mm. Um, but on Tmall, they know they were buying an authentic product because they, we got them directly from Nike as well. Everything's authenticated and stuff coming from the NFL shop. So the overall market for that is very, very small because there's no awareness for it, for NFL products. NBA is a different story just because of the nature of NBA, but the core fan that really like the the NFL, they always bought all authentic products. They didn't mm. want any fake products. They wanted the real stuff. And also what we did is we had a lot of stuff signed merchandise. During that time we were in this store, we had guys like Joe Montana from back in the 49ers day, Jerry Rice, Troy Palamao. We had Tom Brady over. So every time they come, we have them sign a lot of different products and stuff that we would do specials. Mm. Uh, and we'd give those out to, sometimes we'd, we'd just do lucky draws and stuff and give these away. And sometimes they'd, people would actually buy these, but we'd sell at regular price, right? Not like a signed autograph price. They'd just get a, a regular you know jersey and they'd show up with the Tom Brady's signature on it. So randomly randomly oh yeah. i see yeah. okay little sweepstakes type of thing pretty much yeah. yeah so we we did a lot of that you know kind of surprise and delight things oh, uh, wow. to try to build that brand and it just continued to get these viral like spikes every once in a while of for things course. so but you know if you're going to connect with fans and consumers you have to do these like surprise and delight type of items it doesn't cost you a lot but the media attention and media you know value you get is so big yeah exactly so for those who don't know, what exactly is 1111 and why is this such a spectacle in China? Yeah. So quite a few years ago, Alibaba kicked off this thing they called Singles Day. And it was for all of the people that were single, uh, time to celebrate their singleness, right. uh, to go shopping and do something for themselves. Uh, and it just happened that they chose the two letters, right? 1111, which is like 1111. So it's, they're all single digits exactly uh, for everything. And so they built a whole marketing campaign around this. And then after after several years, it continued to gain steam every year until Talba actually grab a hold of this concept and then it just blew it up. I see. Yeah. So in your early days, was that already kind of invented no, or okay. hadn't even started? Even we were doing the, you know, 2010, 11, 12, even the Taobao before they didn't change the T-Mall to like 2013. Okay. So about that time is when you started seeing the 1111, but it was still very small. I see. It wasn't like, oh, everyone's jumping on board. It was basically 14, 15, and then 16 was the real catalyst of Singles Day. And that's when they started doing the See Now, Buy Now. Uh, Jack Ma with Austin Lee did the lipstick challenge to kick this off. Who could sell the most lipsticks in 15 minutes, right? And Austin Lee beat Jack Ma, which is the founder of Alibaba. He sold like 15,000 pieces in, you know, whatever, five minutes or whatever. Right. They just had limited stock, right? Whoever sold out first was the winner. So okay. that's how Taobao live streaming got kicked off. It's through this 11-11 event. Is 11-11 the biggest day yeah. in China? Definitely it is. And they've continued to expand how they build this up it used to actually just be on one day we're like we have black mm. friday's black friday and they you know it's creeped into the, the weekend to cyber monday and 
things like that. Singles Day is actually, I think it's close to three, three and a half weeks now. Three and a half weeks. Yeah. No so this year it started um, October 20th and then it ends, you know, 11-11. Okay. So you do pre-sales and hold that time. So people will pay deposit for something. It could be very small. So if I'm going to buy a $100 item or whatever, I put a 10% deposit down on it, but I can only check out on 11-11, right? So what happens is they gain the GMV or the gross merchandise value that they have the sales report continued to increase because they start at, you know, October 20th collecting sales mm. for this, but you can't check out to 11.11. And so when you check out, that's when all the, the sales are actually recorded. And during that time, they have another couple functions they put into the system or they deleted from the system. One is you can't cancel any orders until, okay. until 11.12 the day after. Oh, I And you see. can't return anything until the next day, either how. So <laughs> even if you, okay. so the purchase has to go through and then you can do a refund after. Okay. So it's a hundred percent. hundred percent guaranteed uh, whatever revenue conversion and their <laughs> revenue. So initially they, they moved it back seven days and it was 10 days, two weeks, three weeks. This is how they continue to get these revenue numbers that right. are just astronomical, right? And they say, oh, this dwarfs US Black Friday. I'm like, but if you add up Black Friday through Christmas, which is almost about the same time, actually US dwarfs that. Oh, does it? Yeah, it does. I was okay. trying to put the numbers together for it. Right. But, you know, that Black Friday just to kick off the season, but all the way up until Christmas, lots of sales going on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you did all that, it'll be at least the same or close to it or maybe more. Do you know about the return numbers? So return numbers during the, I just actually today I was chatting with another colleague across the board on China is close to 20% return. Now in our experience on Tmall with branded products and stores and stuff like that, how we do we're less than 5% return rate for things. On the brands that you That we manage. Running. Yeah, okay. all the brands we manage less than 5%. And that comes down to making sure that your products are well depicted on the website. And this is part of your score that people give you feedback on, you know, everything from is your customer service quick if you can't answer you know customer service inquiry in 20 seconds they're going to leave a bad comment for you you have to be super fast in customer service that's pre-sell post-sell you have to be really fast be very accommodating if people want to return a lot of times people don't want to return stuff my package was you know has a dent in it or i have a scratch this or this maybe is not exactly can you give me a five rmb off or 10 rmb off type things and if you do that then there's no return as well too so you try to deter any returns right uh, by just working with the consumers and making sure they're getting what they they want so yeah can you explain that customer service aspect of it because <laughs> i think this is also a huge business difference and a cultural difference with right. for example something in the states right right so actually in our book, The Innovation Factor, I talk about this as well too, is that you know we've been a, a custom on the China side for super fast customer service. It's all platform-based. Right now everything is mobile, so you can have customer service agents anywhere. And again, within 20 to 30 seconds of any inquiry where it's a pre or post sell, you need to be able to answer very quickly and respond to them, not just a chat bot, even though there's chat bots available for it, but it needs to be a real human actually responding to inquiry and trying to help the consumers. Once you do that, you have them engaged. And actually, this is the best thing because once you have an engagement with them, you have an opportunity to build some type of rapport with them, but also be able to help them, you know, walk through their order, answer any questions they have, help deter any returns and just try to understand their concerns to help take care of this kind of problem. On the Western side, good luck if you find anybody on a .com that says, hey, oh, they have some <laughs> auto automated chat bots, but it's impossible to talk to anybody. You can listen to some music for yeah office hours or from this time to this time. and us has a little bit different situation because there's four different time zones right so right. depending on where your merchant is or who your brand is they could be you know maybe they're working nine to five is all but they don't work weekends they don't ship on weekends you know it's very little 
That's it's true. very low touch. China is a huge country geographically. Yeah, but it still only has one, one time zone. Country. And the way they have the logistics set up right now, it can be delivered anywhere in the country in two days. And yeah. if you're in the same city, it could be the same day or even you know hours, depend on what type of, you know, if it's a, you know, grocery items and stuff like that, you can get pretty fast. But two days delivery almost anywhere. And it's super fast, super efficient shipping for everything. But in the US, when we talk about the customer service, it's almost non-existent. They don't want, I mean, you try to yeah. find someone's website and try to find a contact. You can't find out where they are, no numbers. The brands that I've been helping advise on the US market, I'm doing just the opposite. I'm putting our phone number right out front. Please call us, mm. right? Because if you can get them on the line, your opportunity to build customer engagement mm-hmm. and whether they have a problem, help them with the resolve a problem, but also help them walk through any of their purchasing decisions. And that's another thing with this live stream that we're doing on the U.S. market as well, too, is that you can actually engage heavily with them and help them walk through their purchasing decision and recommend products and stuff for people on the website through a live stream or even through a phone call or chat right. and make sure that you're fully engaged with the consumer. Don't hide from them like most people do. Yes, exactly. And almost every In brand. Another country. Yeah, it's like <laughs> you can't find anybody, you can't talk to anybody, you can't engage, you have a question. My own experience when I'm there, I, I buy something, it's two or three, four days before you receive any kind of messaging that stuff's even been processed or shipped. Right. And depending on where you live in the US, whether it's UPS or USPS or FedEx, it could take, if it's ground, it could take five, seven, eight days to get to you, mm-hmm. right? So it's a long process. So the sooner that the brands can actually pick, pack and prepare for shipping, the better. And my experience is like, some of them do three days, four days a week is all they do. So all of these customer service, and then you also touched upon live streaming, yeah. were these all in-house and not outsourced? Yeah, so customer service is all in-house. Unless we had like one of the big 1111 vents, we'll need to outsource to another agency just because of the supply and demand. Mm. However, they would be like the first wave and we give them all the FAQs ahead of time so they could answer. If they had something else, they would hot pass it or warm pass that customer service to one of our in-house staff to help resolve. We'd never cut them off and say, oh, we'll get back to you. You know, in the US, they'll say, I'll call you back tomorrow between five and 8 Mm -hmm. p.m. or whatever. Mm -hmm. It'd be a a quick real-time handoff to our internal customer service and they would take care of the situation at that time, right then. What about live streaming? So live streaming, we have a couple different things. We break live streaming down into, we call three different segments. Ones we call customer acquisition, customer retention, and then customer education. So the customer acquisition would usually use outside live streamers. Some of the bigger ones like Austin Lee or Via or Sherry or some of these big KOLs or uh, influencers, we'd use them for customer acquisition. And then everything else we do in-house. So we started right after Taobao Live started doing, you know, we set up a basically a, a live stream mini uh, studio in our, conference room initially Mm. and it started getting so much popular all the brands want to jump on us during this we saw great returns from this as well too and engagement so we ended up getting another office next to where we were because we didn't have that we actually built that into eight live stream studios in there and they go you know basically eight to ten hours a day seven days a week so you built out a complete studio yeah Okay. Eight of them, eight of them. And they're not like super huge. They're small, but they're all branded. Um, we had one with the kitchenette because we had uh, several F&B products in there. They had to, to use the, you know, electric and power and sink and water. Like a QVC, yeah, like a kitchen. Think, and- exactly. So we had one of them built like that, that we changed because we'd use a, the backdrop uh, could be a couple different brands we could use the same studio for. And again, you know, six to eight hours a day, seven days a week, we do this with the number of different brands we had. But again, it's built around customer education, customer uh, retention. We have a lot of different programs. A lot of these were our in-house marketing staff, could be anything from you know, even our warehouse guys, you know, taking the uh, mobile phone out to the warehouse and showing how we do pick, pack and ship for some of the stuff, how we do importing, right? So that, and this would be our VIP groups, we'd show them. 
you know, mm. firsthand what we do and how, just to give them trust and confidence that we knew what we're doing and the products are real. That's one of the key things is uh, confidence in the consumers for there. So can you integrate these kind of educational aspects into the official stores or no, this is through different channels? Yeah, the store itself, you can put those on the product pages. Typically what we did, if we're doing these real like VIP education stuff, we mm. wouldn't repost those anywhere and keep in private groups only for them to have. That's part of the advantage of being in these customer retention programs because these are the stores we had, depending on the premiumness of the store, we'd have different VIP level of groups that would get different attention, different access to first launch products or different bundle products that wasn't available to regular consumers. So we'd build these communities uh, within each of the brands as well too. So how do these communities work tech-wise? So tech-wise, we would usually take them and take them out. For example, if we're on a T-Mall, we take them and put them into a WeChat, which is like a, a WhatsApp, Weixin. the Weixin mm. group. And they have a lot of different segments. And you can have up to 500 members into a single core VIP group. So we'd have basically like, we had one beauty brand where we had millions of you know consumers that oh, wow. purchased from us. So we'd break them down. To different cohorts. We had, we basically. had about five different groups for VIP. Right. And no they'd each, way. so each one would have to manage, right? It's basically a VIP one, two, three, four, five. Each right. one's about 500 members in there. And so we give them different deals and stuff. And this is where the community is really built because they do a lot of chat. Everyone's on their phone anyhow. So this is where you build the community. People share different aspects of the product. If it's a skincare, they're talking about skincare regimens, stuff like that. We invite experts in to do live stream that are from either the hospital or from the brand itself or some other skincare experts or other influencers, we invite in and have them do their, their own skincare re regime. Uh, or we could set up at their studio as well too, or their home. So we just try to be really, really engaged in this. And it's not just a QVC, like here, come buy my stuff. So usually during the retention and the education part, we have products available for sale that's in the live stream, but we don't push the sales. They, mm. they happen naturally. Right. So whereas the customer acquisition, where we work with the big live streamers, it's only for sales and customer acquisition. Okay. Yeah. So what about the business of live streaming, especially kind of from the KOL side? Can you give us a little uh, sneak peek into how that works? Like how much do these people make some of these uh, <laughs> KOLs without disclosing uh, too much information? But yeah, some of the, obviously the largest ones, they're making hundreds of millions of dollars, right? The latest one was Via. She just got fined last year by the government and for like 200 million US dollars. Oh, for just making too much money. Uh, for not paying our taxes. Right, exactly. Right, like for making too much. Yeah. yeah, those guys, they make so much money on this. You know, Austin Lee stuff, they're making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Wow. US dollars, not RMB or any stuff. It's US dollars. They're making so much. And it's their whole agency, not just him himself. Uh, these big live streamers, they're part of this MCN model, which is a multi-channel network. And that's where... If you're going to work with the big live streamers, they're all signed to these agencies. So like Austin, he has his agency, then he has, you know, 50 other smaller live streamers underneath him that all work for him. So they're all doing these brand deals, trying to gain traffic, trying to do rev share deals. The number of live streamers that are actually making real money, I think it's like in any industry, there's a top mm. you know, few percent that are just killing it. You have a, a nice medium set of people that are doing really well. And there's the majority of people probably aren't making that much doing live streaming. Right. But if you look at only the revenue you got from live streaming, that's one thing. But you have to really look at the long tail when you build brand and stuff like that. And most of the KOLs and influencers are not part of a brand. Mm. So for us on a brand side, we want to use all different tiers of influencers to gain as much attention as we can. So you find the ROI on live streaming and using KOLs good? Uh, yeah, I do. I look at it a little bit different. Again, when you break it down to those different segments with acquisition, retention, and education, 
and it can't be over a one month period, it's over a three, six, nine month period, you can really tell how much impact that really has on it. A lot of brands, especially on the Western market, they do one live stream. They think, oh, I was an ROI positive. It doesn't work. Well, first of all, that's not how it works. Yeah. It's like any marketing. <laughs> it's like you ran an ad on YouTube. It didn't generate to, well, you got to do more. Right. And you have to do different ones. You have A-B testing. And our A-B testing would be like education versus uh, the retention programs and stuff we have versus the uh, acquisition. Mm. So I'll give you an example. Like we had one of the beauty brands um, we work with the number one live streamer, Austin Lee. He did a five minute segment. He has like a three hour show every night. Every brand has about five minutes on there. We went with them a couple different times. One of the best ones we had was five minutes, 22,500 orders and close to 300,000 US dollars in sales. What was the product? It was a beauty tool product. It was just like sponge and uh, makeup brush. A makeup brush basically. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, goodness. That's from a U.S. brand that we'd already built up enough brand equity in the marketplace that when people saw this with the pricing and stuff like that, everyone jumped on it. For us, time you pay all the fees, you know, you have slotting fees, basically their influencer fee. You have commissions you have to pay out. You have to reduce some of the pricing that you have because you have to have special pricing for them. Mm. So that acquisition part for us, we'd come out almost breaking even. And I tell every brand, if you can break even, fantastic. Because mm. guess what? I just gained 22,500 new customers at zero acquisition cost. Right, 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 right. Now, once that happens, now it's our customer service, our CRM teams that have to go to work, mm -hmm. right? Because those products need to be used. They get used and need to be replaced. Right. Adding so on that value, we add the value. So exactly. over a time of a period, you know, our repeat purchase rate was so high mm. and actually like the sponges brushes, part of our education would teach them how to extend the life of those products, not hurry and buy another one. Here's how to get another month or two months by carrying and maintaining your product, mm -hmm. right? And people actually appreciated that, hey, they're not just trying to sell me something. They're here actually trying to help me. And that built that nice community we have with at least that particular brand we had. It was one of the most successful brands we had. James Harden too, recently. Oh yeah, <laughs> that was, uh, yeah. Did you watch I, that? I, I've seen the replay for it and I've seen the news and media around it. Yeah, but that's China live stream, right? So there's only a few few platforms. And if you're one of the big live streamers that have a hundred million people on it at any one time, I mean, think about so crazy. How, how many people that watch the Super Bowl, right? Right. And then you have somebody at the live stream with a hundred million viewers, right? And so he puts it out there. And good thing is for them, his wine, number one, wasn't expensive. Right. It was pretty, pretty cheap for China wines, right? Yeah. Um, he's regretting that right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number two, he's part of the NBA, which is widely popular there. Mm. His James Harden, he's been in the marketplace there for quite a long time. He's been back and forth from China with the different organizations, whether it's NBA or Leaning and these other sponsors. Mm -hmm. So he's built himself a really nice name in China and he's always very China friendly for things. Mm. Um, doesn't say anything bad about about it and all these different things. And so when they, these live streamers put them on there, his, what I think it's 10,000 bottles sold out immediately, right? Yeah, but it's, it's so quickly. I saw it, I'm like, yeah, okay, big deal, right? Right. <laughs> I, That's I, I see I this all the time. Career, right? Yeah, well, I, I sold makeup sponges in five minutes for 22,000 right. pieces, okay, right. not 10,000. So to me, it's, it's still a good testament that, you know, if you have the right platform with the right traffic and right product and right messaging, you can sell pretty much anything very quickly. Huh. So how much has live streaming changed in you know your experience and how much do you think it will or can continue to change? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been evolving over the years. It started out just doing a bunch of brands. We're trying to do their stuff with some KOLs or larger influencers. But during pandemic, it really hit into the stores and retail outlets themselves. We call retail associates. Okay. would actually start doing live stream within their store, whether they're at the makeup counter, if they're doing the Fujong, which is the uh, apparel in their store, they'd be doing this as well too, in the store, 
which is actually really quite smart because they can go through and they have different size models. They come in and say, oh, I'm 165 centimeters. I'm this much weight. This is how big it is. This is what it looks like. And they can do real life try-ons for people. And they mm. okay, I like that. Same thing with skincare. You know, I have dry skin. Okay, we'll have dry skin. We have an associated dry skin. Let me come in here. Let's sit down. We can go real time with you and help you solve your problem. So you saw a real influx and a real increase in store associates versus like influencers. Now that they become their own influencers for these brands mm. uh, and also in-house staff as well too. You see a lot of marketing companies or brands themselves, their CMOs or some of their marketing people are doing live stream as well too. One of the ones I worked with previous during a campaign, it wasn't a Level 11 campaign. It was another like fashion campaign was the CMO for Coach China. Mm, okay. He actually came on the live stream for one of the department stores. You would think, oh, who's, you know, yeah. CMO is the guy who came in from US and and he was working with a department store. He was on the live stream with him as well, too, talking about his brand. And, and it's a guy. Speaking and he, in English as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he was talking about, you know, how you know this particular purse or bag was his wife's favorite, right? Right. And they sold quite nicely. But it was, again, through a department store, premium, the luxury type of department store that was doing this live stream. Right. He was part of that. So it was really cool. So what about the logistics, supply chain side of things? Also, you mentioned and touched upon the last mile delivery mm. and how China has this incredibly robust network. So can you tell us a little bit about what you've seen in the development of this? Yeah, initially when we first started getting into this, we had to run our own warehouses. We had to contract our own third-party logistics companies to actually do the last mile delivery. And in order to boost consumer confidence and trust in the platforms, Alibaba, and then it's also like JD has their own logistics on like Amazon Prime delivery. JD's always had, JD.com always had their own delivery system in place. Um, Alibaba finally got on the horse. They actually bought a company and changed the name called Cineal, which is called Rookie. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the logistics system. So they still contract with a bunch of different warehouses and they are the management team and management system for the warehouse and also last mile delivery. They also partner with a handful of trusted last mile delivery companies that would do the last mile delivery, but it's all integrated within the app itself. So for a consumer standpoint, you don't see anything different, right? Mm -hmm. You just order stuff. You can watch real time pick, pack and ship. Basically, once it's shipped, you can actually see it being delivered to your door and you'll get notifications when it's delivered as well, too. So they've got it streamlined now down to two day delivery anywhere in the country. So think about it. if you order something here in L.A., you order something from New York, you're going to get it in two days anyhow, maybe mm. even sooner. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. You mentioned JD.com, Jingdong. Yep. They apparently possess the largest drone delivery system, yep. infrastructure and capability around the world. Yeah. And this is all in-house. It is. is crazy. Yeah. So JD.com's corporate offices in Beijing. So we used to go there, you know, several times a year and meet with their executives, also the merchandising teams, because we ran stores on there as well, too. And I was also part of their global ambassador expert group as well, too. So we got back room access to a bunch of different things. They showed us all their different drones, what they're doing. They have these videos of what they're doing in rural areas with these drones. It's mm -hmm. really impressive. Um, are they working with like DJI or something like this? Or are they I, also developing their I own I think it's drones their own. I think wow. they're, maybe they contract with them or something like that. But they're all JD.com branded. It's not DJI or any of that stuff, as far as I know. Oh, no way. But they, I mean, some of those drones are really quite large. Really? Yeah, because yeah, they, they have carry to carry big packages. Big packages. And so some of these rural communities, they are delivering these packages into all drone based. And they have and they have a bunch of different you know videos at their headquarters about how they do it and what they're doing, how many deliveries a day they do. Um, what is the percent like? Do you know? Do you have any? It's kind still of super small. Okay. It's super, super small. In city, they're not going to do many, right? They have some like promotional videos, but this is mm -hmm. mostly rural areas that it's just hard to get to. 
or right. it takes a long time and they'll have a centralized area in third tier cities and they'll have 10, 15 different drones going out and delivering packages to these communities and they just boom immediately. What are some other kind of innovations, maybe technologically, that you have seen in China that you think are very far away still in the U.S.? Yeah, I think the main innovation is just the speed of access of information into the commerce part of things. We've talked about customer service needs to be, everything's fast, right? So yeah. you have to have fast customer service. Uh, logistics has to be fast. Your visual merchandising is still a long ways away on US Western side. Mm. Uh, when I say visual merchandising, just go to an Amazon, go to any brand.com website. See what I mean by visual merchandising. It's usually one or two static images or they have a couple different things. In China, every product page we have will have a video on it or several videos on it explaining the product walking through showing you all different angles could be a replay of a live stream segment we had on that mm. so the visual merchandising is really top notch and us and western markets just haven't got there yet i go to someone's website in the us it's very static i'm just like there's no information here i have to guess about this and guess about that there's no customer service i can't contact anybody it just seems like you know 2010 so there's a there's still a lot of room to work on that part of things and the proliferation of mobile devices i know the us is still kind of it's growing very rapidly how many people use mobile devices for shopping and obviously people use for video and whether it's tiktok or you know instagram stuff like that's more mobile for the younger generation but majority of people are still buying on their PCs. If you look at the numbers from like Amazon stuff, it's still very PC driven. In the States. In the States. Right. Whereas China, you know, we have our stores, 98% of all of our orders come from uh, mobile. Right. That's chapter four of your book is oh, the importance the mo of mobile. mobile first, right? Yeah. yeah. So you, you look at even like Shopify, they have, oh, these are mobile friendly, but basically it's a desktop that's configured for mobile browsers. All It's not really a mobile experience. Uh, so some stuff is left out. It's not very intuitive. So if Shopify or these other platforms, they should have, you know, a different mobile type of system that's showcased on these browsers versus taking a PC version and shrinking it down into a, a mobile version of it. It's not really mobilized. I, I don't know if that's the right word. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. So that's part of the section two of your book, which is the future of retail, right? Mm. Chapter four is mobile first. Chapter five is the impact of social commerce. Chapter six is online merge offline, OMO. Yeah. And chapter seven is the human touch, which we just touched upon. Right. Last mile <laughs> delivery, QR codes, which we haven't touched upon yet. Right. And CRM. Yeah. Would you like to talk about any I of can those talk. Things? Yeah. So I think the QR codes, in fact, I just posted uh, I think on LinkedIn regarding Amazon Black Friday, they're just coming out with, they're having this big sell, but they're doing it during the Black Friday NFL game with New York Jets and Miami Dolphins. Mm. So this is the first time they're doing shoppable ads on the Amazon Prime Live NFL game. Okay. And part of their strategy is to use QR codes to help, help people shop from there as well too. And they have limited edition products and deals structured only during the game time certain merchandise and they have a bunch of different brands signed on for this as well too. So they're taking bits and parts of the great part of the uh, China story and implementing them. So I just put a post out on LinkedIn on this, regret this, and they've met a bunch of different check marks. Let's see how well they implement it. Right. Yeah. U.S. is finally catching up. Well, at least Amazon, <laughs> Amazon's, you know, they're, they are testing a lot of different things to help out, but being a marketplace versus a brand itself is still going to be way different. So, but we'll see how they go. I'm glad things are moving quickly on there. And then the OMO type of things, the U.S. retail is trying to get in that. Most of the retail people are now what they get into called retail media. Hmm. They're thinking, oh, actually, I have all this traffic coming. I can sell this. Instead of doing slotting fees into my store, I can charge them to display on my website. They call it retail media. Hmm. It's like this whole new thing. Interesting. Um, yeah. 
but for retailers, they should be working these brand deals and stuff, not only doing retail media, but they should be doing different live streams, whether it's a Target. I know Walmart's trying to do a bunch of stuff right now, but just because they've been in the China market for so long, they've taken a lot of learnings from that in back in the US market with their marketplace and they're doing live streams. So Walmart's doing a lot of things. Um, one of the challenges I think with Walmart is their customer base is going to be a Walmart customer. Right. You're not getting the high end customer, medium premium customers going to walmart.com to buy stuff. Yeah. So it's fine what they're doing and they can probably move a lot of product. I think, you know, if they're going to be a real player in this space, but I think they're doing fine where they are because they have all their distribution points and things. They'll continue to build that out. But there's plenty of other, you know, medium sized type of retailers, whether it's grocery side or, you know, just actually straight retail, whether it's Home Depot, Lowe's, all these guys, they could be doing some really nice, cool things with uh, video commerce, mm. which they're not doing at all. So we heard some case studies about some successful promotions or campaigns. What about some that have kind of fallen flat or some products that are not necessarily a good fit for the Chinese market? Do you have any experiences with some of those? Yeah, in, in <laughs> early days we were, you know, because there wasn't a lot of data sets available for us when we were, you know, trying to bring a bunch of brands in. There's a lot of interest to come to China. So we were just helping launch, you know, some brands that probably shouldn't have launched there. Right, right. They weren't, number one, <laughs> not a right product fit. I mean, we launched a, a yarn brand, mm. right? The DIY like knitting community in China is not that big, but right. but in the US it's quite large. Sure. So we worked with the largest yarn companies <laughs> helping launch their brand in China. And it was just complete disaster. <laughs> on Tmall. Yeah, it was on Tmall. It was just, we already knew it probably, you know, it's a long shot, but you know, at the same time, we're just, we were building our brand portfolio early days. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of data sets. What could work, didn't work in the marketplace. There just wasn't a lot of visibility and stuff. So as we started launching, we got really smart about how we launched and didn't launch brands. And as we got farther into the system, right? Because Chinese consumers buy brands, they don't buy products. And US consumers usually buy products, not brands. Mm. And the opposite, that's why you can sell anything you want in the US and China it has to be very brand specific. It has to be great word of mouth, it has to be reviewed and trusted on trusted websites like a Tmall or a JD, it has to have all the reviews, it has to have you know KOL endorsements, it has all these different components involved before people will buy them. Otherwise they think it's not a real product, it's not authentic, can't do anything with it, especially if it's an ingestible or skincare product or something like that. So right, right, right. Okay. So that yarn story I think is, you know, a nice story about kind of a lack of product fit or yeah. Uh, but what about about regulatory wise, you know, kind of running up against the system, the legal system, or these maybe cultural differences or expectations. Yeah, I think the compliance thing is one of the greatest challenges for Western brands coming into mm -hmm. the China market. You know, early on when we were bringing these things, we'd have to do a lot of testing to bring products in. You have customs, you have compliance, labeling, all these things, and you're bringing new brands in. It was so expensive to do on a small scale, mm. right? So that was really challenging. Even like yarn, we had to bring them in and do separate labeling, all this stuff. Even though you aren't making any money, it costs so much money right. to do this, right? Wow. And then there was this huge surge in overseas brands or products being purchased and sent from overseas Chinese, whether it's from Australia, from US or UK. And this market's called Daigo, which is the purchase on behalf of somebody. Yes. So these guys would go into, you know, a store and, you know, in Sydney or into New York or wherever they buy whether handbags or skincare. And they would basically call them suitcase sellers. They bring mm. tons of products back to China and sell that way, right? Because of the regulatory thing, especially as skincare or wellness products, even fashion products, you have to have labeling and material testing. And there's just a lot of challenges for compliance. And that's where this whole, we call 
cross-border China got set up, right? And the number one platform is called Tmall Global, which is a complete cross-border system. And that's all integrated within China Customs as well, too. So when I open a store, a flagship store on Tmall Global, it's complete cross-border. I have zero compliance, zero labeling requirements. Everything sits in a bonded warehouse in China. And when someone orders, it gets picked, packed, and shipped from the bonded area directly to consumer. Again, two-day delivery. This is all within the Tmall ecosystem. Yes. So this is not including, for example, Jingdong. JD has their own. It's oh, called JD really? Worldwide. I see. Yeah. Okay. And it's a cross-border platform. And these are all government approved. Right. I think there's 17 different free trade zones that e-commerce is approved for. You know, whether it's Alibaba or JD or even TikTok, they have these warehouses that are set up in there, but they're all integrated with China Customs. So everything's regulated to some degree. Again, no labeling, no testing, pretty much sell anything as long as it's in their white list of things, uh, of ingredients and whatnot. You can sell into China with very little compliance issues. And it's four brands coming from overseas that haven't gone through all the regulatory compliance, which is really, really stringent in China as well too. Right. But again, the platform they back everything because if the ingredients and product is on a white list and the government says it's okay to come in, but it has to go through that cross-border official process. Okay. So tax is collected like a, we call personal import tax. Right. It's not a regular VAT like they have, but it's a smaller duty that they have to be paid. Whereas like in the U.S., if I send something to the U.S., if it's under 800 U.S. dollar, it comes in tax-free. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. When did this change happen? 2015. 2015. Wow. Yeah, it kicked off. And initially they tried to set this up. They started for six months and was complete disaster. Okay. Because nothing was integrated with China Customs. We were one of the first, like I would call guinea pigs on it. Okay. We had Australian brands we brought in. We had to go set up our own warehouse in the bonded zone. We had to do our own custom software integration. We had to collect (laughs) people's ID after they made an order. Oh, and wow. send that to customs. This is like all manual. All manual process. <laughs> right. And a lot of people cancel the order because they're like, I'm not giving you my yeah, details, exactly. right? Who are you? Right. And so it just got really complicated. And then actually they kind of shut that program down for like six months and they revamped everything and they integrated. How did they pivot from there? They got all the feedback basically, okay. like everything. I was part of an advisory group on that as well too when they relaunched this. And then they integrated China Customs. They integrated Alipay, which Alipay, you need to have real-time verification of your name as well too. Right. So they integrated all into one. So now when an order gets placed, China Customs gets your, your ID number. Mm. So it's real. And they get the payment and everything through Alipay and stuff like that. So everything's all integrated now. So it's really streamlined. So I can order just like an order domestic product. I right. still get it two days. Oh, and wow. Alibaba handles all the logistics. So it's really getting that buy-in from the government. Yes. That's yeah, really the government had to off. step in and do it. And then Alibaba had to make their investment in the software systems and placements. And then it's all integrated with China Customs. And China Customs actually has offices in all these warehouses. Yeah. There's actually China Customs officers in all of these bonded warehouses. Okay. So it's very sophisticated what they're doing. I think it's good, right? It's great consumer protection. We don't have anything like that in the US. Everything just comes in whenever. I mean, obviously they're tracked as much as they can, but they catch a lot, but look how much they don't catch. Could you ever envision this kind of system happening in the US? No, it's, we're too far down the road of, you know, the port of entry from all different areas. Yeah. Uh, China's, you know, a few ports of entry really mm-hmm. that can really come in. And, right. and they And they actually... You know, it's only the East Coast. Yeah. And they also control their borders well. Yes. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> we, I think we have a challenge on north and south on the U.S. side of things really controlling the border, especially right. on the southern side. So Right. And you mentioned that from the outset in the book, right, where it's this lack of baggage yeah. that really kind of sets China apart and helps to understand and put context into how this transformation was able to happen. Yeah, they made that. And we talked about 2005 when I was there. It was still very rogue kind of, I wouldn't say rogue society about it, but it's just it wasn't very sophisticated in a lot of different areas. Yes. iPhone hadn't come out yet. Definitely. Right. So there's just a lot of things that were just like still developing, still a little bit backwards from what we'd see in the West. Mm-hmm. So we were way ahead. But then, you know, very, very quickly, within five, seven, eight years, they leapfrogged everything we do around the West and they just continued to pour more fuel to the fire from that. Right. And they continued developing with their AI, what they're doing. I mean, we even talk about live stream. They're doing live stream AI now as well, too. I've seen it. It looks okay. I think there's a market for it, but I think that human human touch is still going to be much better mm, at the end of the day, but right. they'll still be able to do it and do more. It's basically going to be like a, a digital marketing asset. I wouldn't call it live stream. It's just a digital marketing asset. Yes. Right. So the final part of the book, part three is innovative management models, chapters eight through 10. Chapter eight is management and leadership models. Chapter nine is what China can learn from the world. And then chapter 10 is maybe the other side of that coin, which is learning together, right? Yeah. So can you tell a little bit about maybe management and leadership models? Yeah, the management leader styles that they do on the China side, I think that can be useful for Western companies is number one, empowering your, whether it's your CMOs, your marketing, your CRM teams, and putting that vision out there for them, what consumers are really trying to, to get it. And it's also the speed of innovation. Mm. Uh, a lot of brands, they get in there, you know, CMOs or CEOs, they don't want to get their hands dirty very much. They move at a very slow pace. We call China speed for things, right? They're willing to um, go, go, fast. Hard, go fast and fail. Make a lot of mistakes. Right. And then they revamp and they do it again. They do it again. And that's, you know, I think that's one of the key learnings from that, not just from the management styles, but from the marketplace itself. That's why they've been able to innovate so quickly. And brands on the U.S. side, whether it's a retailer and stuff like that, I know some of the large organizations, you know, they have their systems in place and they're kind of legacy type stuff. And maybe personnel is not completely up, up to date. And then people say, oh, that works in China, like we call it the new retail part of this, right? Where everything's O to O. You have digital and you can buy in store, buy online. Everything's called kind of integrated. U.S. is getting closer and closer to that. Some of the retailers are there. There's a lot of them not even close to that yet. But I think it comes leadership from the top and say, hey, we're going to need to innovate. This is where our consumers are and not rely on the old 10, 15, 20 year program that we've done. Where's our consumers at today and how mm. do we touch them? Right. right. A lot of people are still saying, oh, just, you know, we'll hire XYZ agency just to do some postings on uh, social force. And they think that's good enough. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's just like, yeah, that was five years ago. Yeah. Right? Not anymore. Now let's take the next level and move you where you guys need to be. So that's part of one of the, I'd say the management styles that needs to be adopted very quickly. So chapter nine, what can China learn from the world? Patience. Humility. <laughs> the other side of that. <laughs> yeah, all this stuff, right? Right. Um, sustainability uh, uh, is another yes. thing as well, too. That's a big part um, of the chapter. And we, and we have a lot of brands that come in that, you know, we wanted to launch or they wanted to launch with us. And their whole mission was, you know, every order goes to, you know, a portion of us goes to whatever charity, whatever like that. Sustainable packaging, sustainable resourcing of the products or ingredients. And the society on China side just hasn't got to that level yet. They're not sophisticated. They don't know what it means. Yeah. And that's their core message on the site. So when you try to launch a brand into something that the consumer and the brand can't see eye to eye on, mm. it's a complete failure. So right. we've advised a lot of brands in this space that want to come. We're just like, stay in your home market. 
market, mm. right? Put your resources there. China's not ready for it. If you do, it's a step-by-step module to get in here. And let's work with some influencers or Chinese consumers in your home market. And you can really learn a lot from your home market, just from the overseas Chinese that are living there where they're students or these Daigo agents. Mm. Learn from them first, mm-hmm. and then you can launch into China. So. Mm. Nice. I think that's a perfect segue into the last chapter, which is learning together. You've also, as we mentioned from the beginning, Mm. you've left China, you're here in Taiwan, but you will also be leaving back to the States on a little business trip in a month or so as well. And you do a lot of business now kind of pivoting back towards the United States and bringing a lot of these insights and learnings there. So what about this learning together? Yeah, I think the learning together thing is very important because there is these geopolitical tensions and stuff going on. So on that part of it, we stay away from all that. And I think, you know, most brands and stuff don't even get involved, which is a great thing because our impact is so little on it. We just continue to do what we do when we bring brands into China, but also the brands coming out of China or the systems or methodologies we're using, bringing back to the U.S. As you mentioned, I'm working a lot with U.S. companies right now, whether it's Livestream, and a lot of them are using SaaS things and also some brands and helping them with their visual merchandising, marketing, customer engagement, right? Just help them think through the strategy, how to really improve their D2C and also their retail aspects of what's going on. So this new retail concept is not super new on the West. People know about it, but very few people have actually implemented. There's getting more and more traction, but there's still a lot more to do. And there's a, a few secret magic bullets that'll be coming up next year as well, too, that I'll help introduce to a couple brands on this mm. video commerce part of things for, for the retail outlets. Okay. And it really helps supercharge. China's not quite there yet, but there's a whole other concept that can be done very, very well. And it fits the Western market perfectly. It doesn't work so well in China because of the retail landscape. The built out US retail landscape, this type of video commerce integrated with what they're doing is a perfect recipe for success. Okay. Soon to be coming. Yes. Yes. Okay. And you mentioned the kind of geopolitical, mm-hmm. you know, uh, tensions and uh, zeitgeist that we are right. currently in. And we find ourselves here in Taiwan, uh, which kind of sits almost perfectly between China and the United States right. in many ways. Right. Yeah. So what about Taiwan? You know, we're comparing a lot between these two giants of the U.S. and China and Taiwan in a lot of ways being a hybrid, right. uh, you know, kind of culturally, economically and otherwise historically as well between these two. What about about the Taiwanese ecosystem in terms of business and other things? What are some of your feelings or takeaways? Well, I think, first of all, I think anyone coming to Taiwan, the first thing they'll notice mm-hmm. is the number of convenience stores around. Yes, right. right? So it's very convenient. It's very convenient. It's not just a convenience store, but the services they offer there are really robust. They've integrated in Taiwan society so well, whether you want to use it for e-commerce, you want to use it for just paying reg- your bills, pay your bills, you can do anything, right? Just like, you know, they say the WeChat's the Swiss army knife for stuff, but the, the 7-Eleven. 7-11s <laughs> and family marts are the Swiss army knife for the Taiwan market. Their digital ecosystem is still in development. I think their e-commerce is actually not too bad. It's still very segmented though. You have a couple of platforms, PC Home, Momo Shop. People have some line shops, um, but those are all kind of like brand.com stuff. And they're just, you know, a lot of small players in the marketplace. It's not really robust system. Logistics isn't too bad mm. for being a small item. Right. Uh, it could be improved a lot from, you know, what I see on the China side, what I'm used to, there can be still some improvements there, but you know, I think it's coming along quite nicely. The regular retail itself with department stores, I think are, they've done a pretty nice job. And I've seen, I was just at a new department store over in Xindian this last weekend as well, too. And it's a beautiful store. Uh, where the new S light or elite or whatever the yeah. big store is called. Yeah, I went there. Okay, I haven't it, been there it, yet. The design is my wife told me is a Taiwanese designer, a lady who actually did design stuff. It's, I was really shocked. It doesn't, 
doesn't look like a regular department store. It has, you know, nice shops and it just felt really nice and premium luxury, even though you had some regular stores in there. Mm. It just felt really nice. What about mobile payments though? So, you know, cause that's a big thing that people who have been in China mm. and then in Taiwan will, I think, notice immediately because China is almost completely a cashless country, right? right? But Taiwan is almost completely the opposite in many right. ways, right? Where a lot of people carry cash, everything is cash. Here. Right. So what do you think about this realm, the fintech and mobile, you know? Yeah, I mean, because of the the Western influence early on here, and they got used to doing credit cards and stuff, the Visa MasterCard, they got stuck in that conundrum for things like the right. US has. They haven't been able to break through from those um, big powers so they're really stuck in that so everyone has you know multiple credit cards i mean i don't know how many doesn't have a dozen credit cards from places it's yes. crazy so they use credit card for a lot of payments for different areas definitely cash is still king here for me and some of my friends we use line pay mm, for most things right. but that's again tied to your bank account to yes. some degree i find it very convenient not everyone takes it but i use line pay or apple pay if i use digital stuff here but online payments for like even like utility stuff is still a little bit challenging ui and how they do the billing is not really that great um mm. some of the banking doesn't allow you to do some quick payments and stuff that they need as we expect either on the china or u.s side of things but i think you know overall i'm pretty pleased with it but you know sometimes it is nice to have cash in your hand and mm, pay for stuff good. yeah it feels good <laughs> I, I can tell you i never I, in in china i don't think i ever carried cash after especially the last three or four or five years i was there never never don't even touch it you don't there's no need for it definitely here you're still need for it because some yes. stuff you can't pay exactly like i go to 7-eleven i pay my mobile bill it's cash only they're not going right. to take even line pay or anything right so it has to be cash basically if i want to pay them and if i get a, a shoppy order cod yes, has exactly. to be cash the cod exactly has to be cash as well too so right but so there's advantage disadvantage but you know taiwan's continuing to progress on that i think overall being a, a nice you know western friendly type of community they have here it's continuing to be built out but there's definitely rooms improvement i mean u.s has the same things so. right where do you think the most attention should be paid in taiwan in terms of this rooms for improvement do you see any kind of emergent opportunities or markets here in taiwan or do you think it's quite difficult especially you know discussing this vis-a-vis -vis china which has a huge market right? right taiwan is limited geographically and then population wise as well so that might be a hindrance to these kind of larger aspirations but any kind of things that you see there some opportunities yeah i think the opportunities is probably around sports and entertainment mm, um it, not so much digital or physical products and stuff like that so there's two things i'd really like to see taiwan really move to the more of an international stage would be around sports and entertainment mm. they have the new stadium the large they call it da ju dan exactly the big just egg open, the big egg just yes. just they have the small <laughs> egg and the big egg yes and that's built for you know more international events it's you know with covid i think it took a, a backstage for everything just finally getting finished and they're doing some testing with it right now and they'll have some events but i would like to see that or some other stuff continue to like build themselves on a more international stage for that part of it entertainment sports and really raising the level here we do have the baseball and basketball for the pro leagues as well too but you'll continue to get more of these international sporting events and stuff coming in. I think it's really going to help out Taiwan's, you know, give them a, a new stage to sit on as well, too. And the second thing I would really like to see is to actually implement something like the China cross-border model they have, but have it in for Taiwan for, you know, real cross-border, mm. uh, like digital e-commerce, because there's so much product coming in anyhow. Of course. Shopee's doing this. I mean, people are just importing this and that, and they have these different systems in place, but it's not really guaranteed, and government's not collecting taxes on stuff. It's yeah. just, it's still kind of, you know, wild west i think if the government
government and say, hey, we're going to put a real cross-border system in here, right? And they have a couple of different ports, whether it's, you know, the Italian, Geelong, Kaohsiung type stuff that can come in. That's where everything comes in. You control everything, collect taxes on everything, consumer awareness and confidence and trust will go up and people will be able to do this type of, uh, I'd call it a China cross-border model, be a Taiwan cross-border model. I would mm. love to see something like that. Oh, um, wow. Has the government reached out to you yet? No, but if anyone's listening, exactly. let me know. I'd love to be part of the <laughs> yeah. part of advisory group on this and get this up and running. So I Let's think it'd be really cool. I think it'd be really cool to do it just because the friends I know, they, you know, they try to buy products. They, you know, run to friends. They buy stuff from Japan or try to get some from Korea. And it's like, you know, doing this whole. It's a pain. It's customs. a pain. Yeah. Right. For sure. So, but if you have this thing set up and allow brands and stuff to kind of come in, I think it'll raise the level of everyone's game here mm -hmm. because you had guys like PC home, which is still on 2005 UI. Of course. <laughs> Taiwan <laughs> <Which> is, UI. <laughs> right. It's just, I don't understand. Um, but it's amazing. I, it's amazing. There's still like there. a million tabs at the top. <laughs> right. It's just, it's not good UI. Momo is doing much better. They've continued to improve their app. It feels mm. a lot more like China-esque app. Yeah. Yeah. More yeah, and more. yeah. Shopee looks more Shopee and more like is, be, yeah. yeah. Shopee just came in, but it is very well welcoming. I mean, I use both of them. I shop on Shopee, shop on Momo. I don't use PC Home. I'm just, I can't stand I don't, it. Exactly. I don't I'm use like, it. It's terrible. It's just a pain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So speaking of this kind of cross-border situation, you also have an interesting experience working with another company before this, which was a Canada-based <laughs> CBD company. Mm. And I remember you telling me an interesting story about kind of running into order and customs right. Right. things with this. So yeah, can you tell us a little bit about this company? Yeah, so I'd spent, you know, a bunch of my career in China helping bring Western brands and stuff in through Tmall, Tmall Global, JD, JD Worldwide doing all these different things. And then, you know, as the pandemic was getting close to launching, I guess, which we didn't know about, I was actually in transition. I started up another cross-border. It was a China cross-border from US-China cross-border. We were only doing on CBD topical products. That means, you know, face creams and lotions, stuff like that. We didn't deal with any tinctures or any of that stuff. So we we're just doing straight creams and lotions uh, with uh, about 50 different brands. We had signed for exclusive contracts and stuff for Asia. So we started getting that up. We had buy-in and support from Tmall Global because the CBD ingredient itself was on China Customs whitelist. Mm. Um, what year was this? 2019, 2021. Oh, wow. Okay. This is very recent. Yeah. So this and is very- It was on the whitelist. It was on the whitelist. Okay. So that's when the first thing we checked, I wanted to do something other than just launching straight brands in China and stuff like that. I wanted to create a real platform and be kind of a little bit of a pioneer on this new aspect, whether in Canada or US, the CBD topical products were gaining a lot of attraction, a lot of investment. Right. Canada was- uh Pioneer. Pioneer in that. Yep. U.S. jumped on board as well, too. A lot of the state regulations, federal regulations were, you know, if it's less than 0.03 THC, then everything's good. But this is all topical. No one's eating lotion anyhow, mm. right? So the health and wellness benefits of CBD and some of the, the lotions and cream, stuff like that, somewhat documented. And so it's really gaining a lot of attention. So the investor group I was working with, they really wanted to be pushing that. So we launched a full cross-border platform on this. We work with Tmall, Alibaba, helping do supple the brands. We opened flagship stores. We had had a lot of product into the China free trade zone customs, whether it's hemp or CBD, we had all the stuff in those areas. We were doing quite well. Again, we were number one platform, number one representative brands bringing in. 
And then pretty much in a 30 to 60 day period, China went from whitelist to blacklist. 30, 60 days? Yeah, we got notification. It came out. No way. And um, <laughs> they basically said, they came out and said, we're going to do a study on this and see if it's right, feasible. Feasible, right? <laughs> right? So once they put out, you know, you're, you're sunk. Yeah, and about exactly. 30, 45 days later, they put a final ruling out. But as soon as they did that. It's quick. Yeah, it just came out. It came out of the blue. The platforms basically dropped all support. The warehousing and logistics, they wouldn't ship any products. They said, oh, we're still doing testing on your products. Right. Right. With no real answer. So we'd have customers order from us and still they wouldn't get shipped out. We had to cancel all the orders for them while the product just sat there. <laughs> um, and then finally, when it went to blacklist, they delisted the stores as well, too, because they were, we were selling those products, right? They basically right. took you offline. So we had these flagship stores that got completely cut down. No products could be listed on them. All our products just sat in the uh, free trade zone. No uh, <laughs> and the warehouse people and customs wouldn't touch anything. They just kept saying, oh, we're still working on testing. We have a testing schedule for your products. So we couldn't even get them out. So at the end of the day, we had just end up having them to destroy them. How much product was this? Many pallets. We had probably just in any one brand, you know, 10 to 15,000 pieces in there. Okay. For so any one brand. That's a lot of money. Yeah. It's a lot of money sitting there. And yeah. some of these brands that we work with it, I mean, the CBD brands in the US, they weren't like huge, huge kilometer brands. They're all like kind of startup brands. Yeah, they had exactly. seed funding and stuff like that. So it was real money for everybody in this space. So yeah. So within 30, 60 days, pretty much everything got shut down. We couldn't do advertising. None of the influencers would touch the product. Once it came out on blacklist. So we just all marketing, it just went flat, boom, completely radio silence, right? So it was a good lesson in uh, being a pioneer, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but I think your timing is quite good, though. I mean, yeah, you were there in the beginning and then also in the end. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's not like what it was in those heydays anyways, right? No, it's even kinda... the U.S. market and everything, everything's crashed there. Exactly. Right? It's crashed big time. Yeah, we just, you know, thought it'd be a good opportunity to try something new. And it was uh, on the forefront of kind of cutting edge type of products coming out. We thought we'd have, a, you know, a nice entrance into the marketplace. Uh, we were expanding right. outside mover of advantage. first mover. We do this uh, and be picked up by, you know, whole idea is to be acquired by one of the bigger companies out of this right away. Of right? course. So that's why we, we moved quickly. We moved at China speed to get everything else, but then China speed caught us as caught well Caught us too. in the end as yeah. well. <laughs> so but it's, Put the it, kibosh it, on Yeah, it. at the end of the day, it's still great learning experience. Uh, made a lot of good friends out of this as well too, on the brand side of stuff. Uh, all of us, you know, got caught in a, you know, a little bit difficult predicaments for different areas, but uh, right. in the end, it uh, <laughs> kind of turned out okay. And the company ended up, you know, I exited that company and they actually pivoted uh, into UK market, which was still hot. Okay. And then that market's turned now as well too, right? A few years later, now it's turned. Yeah. Exactly. So there, yeah, it's so uh, you had a perfect exit. I think so. <laughs> Good timing. <laughs> I have to deal with all the other stuff with this. So right, right. Yeah. Once I exited that, I started really focusing my attention on the U.S. market. Right, mm. and that's where you know this book and stuff came out. With just got to get asked all the time. Hey, what can we be doing on the China side? Because even when working with all these Western brands bringing into China. We'd try to help educate their own market, their own CMO and stuff at the headquarters about, hey, you guys should think about this with your website. You should think about this for live streaming. Your merchandising should look like this. Your brand collaborations, you got to think about these different areas, right? And those are all things that they weren't doing on the U.S. side of things, even on the retail side. We could be doing with QR codes into straight landing page and data collection and gifting and all these different things. They weren't actually doing a lot of work there. So we were mm. do doing a lot of work trying to educate them. And, you know, during the last year and a half, two years, I've been focusing most of my time on the U.S. market with video commerce and shoppable video, shoppable live stream, visual merchandising, retail, really trying to get these brands and retailers up to speed um, mm. with some of the, the new market knowledge they can really help out with. Yeah, I feel like you're 
timing not only on the CBD was uh, auspicious, <laughs> but it seems like your exit out of China was also equally, you know, fortuitous right. in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. You were there during the golden age yeah. in Shanghai. I mean, that was a crazy time to be in Shanghai and to be doing what you were doing. Yeah. A bunch of our colleagues and friends we made during that time, we reflect now just in the last, you know, since COVID opened up travel and stuff, we, we get together and we talk over, you know, glass of wine or bottles of wine or whatever but exactly. uh, we talk about how you know the golden years we were there it was such a magical time seeing the the rise of this nation the communities the people the systems just the environment that we were able to participate in it was really really great to be in that and you know as you mentioned it's kind of the golden time those doors have all been shut now to some mm -hmm. degree mm -hmm. um, but there's still you know we there's still a lot of learnings going on there there's still a lot of innovation a lot of tech going on there which is great as well too so you know we keep our we keep our foot in both sides of the, the markets now so we can continue to learn mm. and be able to share with other people. Yeah. And it seems like a natural pivot to the U.S. market, right? Yeah. And bringing those kind of insights and learnings there. Right. But we do run up a little bit of a headway because they're not quite ready for some of the stuff we bring That's in. interesting. You guys are crazy. <laughs> this will never work. I'm like, it's like TikTok. You Chinese cowboy. You. That's right. <laughs> TikTok stuff. Everyone thought it'd never work, right? Just the way they do that stuff. TikTok shop will never work. It's going to kick off like crazy, right? Obviously, Reels and Facebook, everyone's trying to copy different areas. YouTube shorts, get into mm. the space. YouTube's launching their live stream from their stuff as well too mm -hmm. so they're they're slowly getting into it there's a bunch of other platforms on the u.s side like fanatics live is doing card breaks and all these different things around their merchandise and memorabilia stuff and they're going to continue to kill it because they have the audience there's a bunch of different platforms like network like to know it right that do very niche type of live streams and mm -hmm. i think they're doing very very well and they'll continue and they just basically use the china model Right. Right. And they're hitting the U.S. market for it and they're continuing to do very well. So, But there's still a huge opportunity for mid to high end brands or even small brands can actually do really well now. It seems like you're interested in sports as well. Mm. You mentioned kind of those card breaks. I also noticed that you are interested in NIL as well. Name, image, likeness. What is it with sports with you and how do you find the market in the States? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that segment. Yes. So sports is always, I've always grown up in sports since been a little kid, right? From football, basketball, baseball, some tennis, been big into those sports all the way through basically college to some degree and just always kept my foot in those different areas, have a lot of interest. I just, it's one of those things sports kind of brings communities together, kind of like, you know, entertainment does it to some degree as well too, but sports, mm -hmm. it really crosses international boundaries. When I was here early on, first couple of years in Taiwan, the way we made a lot of friends is actually playing basketball. Yeah. Right. And we'd have American football, we'd have as well too. We just, and no one's ever seen one ever thrown them. So we teach people how to throw the ball and Some just make pick friends, up games. pick up games to do that. But the basketball courts, we made a lot of friends and colleagues and stuff like that early on, just because it's kind of an international sport people, and you don't have to speak the same language at the time to be able to, you know, integrate and, you know, actually make friends with people doing this stuff. So, so that part of it uh, was in Shanghai, there's a, uh, a full American tackle league there. I was one of the coaches for one of the teams for several years. Oh, is this uh, mostly expats or uh, it's no, a these are it's combination between expats and local Chinese. So out of 11 players on the side, six have to be local Chinese and five could be Westerners or okay. foreigners to kind of help, you know, bring the level up and get those guys up to speed. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of my job, obviously I'm fluent in Chinese, but I would help a lot of the local Chinese teach about the fundamentals. Yeah. 
right? For sure. Whether it's blocking and tackling, catching, throwing, running, how to hit and not get hurt, how right. to get hit and not get hurt. Yes. Right. And, and just the physicality of things. So I did that for quite a few years in the China side. Just, you know, we had, there's a probably about 18 teams at the time throughout China. And of course I was running the NFL China shop at the same time. So we had access to footballs and stuff like that. As right. well too. So, that so it's pretty fun. And some of the guys were big fans of different teams and stuff. And if we were carrying some of the merchandise, you know, I'd find a way to get either, like you said, had signed merchandise or just some merchandise out to them as well too. I was always a, a fan favorite for folks that show up with prizes or gifts all the time for right. games or sometimes practices show up with helmets or hats and pass out to people. So it's valuable. Yeah. Nice guanxi builder. Exactly. So exactly. Sport, sports, sports. <laughs> that's why I said, you know, for Taiwan and sports entertainment, if they can do more sporting events and stuff in the region, I think it'd be really good for Taiwan on the international stage to really build their brand up even further. Yeah, hundred percent. Our last guest, Taylor Chen, yep. is the uh, English announcer for the T1. Her brother is the English announcer, Ryan Chen, for the PLG. We talk quite deeply about you know the industry and some of the problems there, some obstacles, and also a lot of hope you know right. for the future as well as it develops. Yeah, I mean, early on there was no, I mean, the number of sports professionals in Taiwan would, and there was no market for it, right? Yeah. So everyone, if you wanted to do that, you had to go to a special high school to learn sports, and then right, these if you sports wanted high schools, right, sports high schools. And then you need to go overseas for anything else, right? Because there just wasn't leagues here for it. Where in the U.S., everything from, you know, professional pickleball to volleyball to skateboarding, there's professional leagues for everything, mm -hmm. right? And the level of competition is really, really high. Yeah. And there's plenty of media dollars and sponsorship dollars and all these different things available that really build these professional sports things where Taiwan doesn't have that environment. It's always like, you know, you need to be in tech, you need to be a doctor, you need to be a lawyer. Exactly. Right? So you just got to go to school. Yeah, and, and go to school. You that's should it. not be playing sports afterwards. Yeah. And now you have, you know, a bunch of people here. I have some friends that have junior high and high school kids now and ask them, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a YouTuber. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and even though they're growing up in Taiwanese families, like, no, That's I want to be right. a YouTuber. I want to be a content creator. So you see the waves change in a little bit. But I think sports, you know, once those, and we talk about sports or entertainment, stuff like that, whether it's the basketball, I know baseball has their mm -hmm. you know, challenges, but they're doing quite well as well, too. And it could be some other things, whether pickleball could be another great one for Asia, for especially for I Taiwan. Know. It's blown up here, actually. Yeah. So yeah. it could be a, a really nice, you know, professional league for folks as well, too. So it's going to take a little time to get there. And Still with early days. Yeah. And Taiwan's really trying to push this 2030 agenda for bilingual English Chinese yes, right. uh, environment. I think it's going to be a little more than 2030, but I think it's of a course. good goal to get to. But yeah, so that's going to help change the landscape as well, too. Yeah, I think so. Nice. Okay. So what does the future hold for you here? Are you going to be here in Taiwan for the foreseeable future? Will you be pivoting back to the States? Will you be going back and forth? Or will you just be globetrotting the world, hoping to not get stranded on a four hour tour? <laughs> tour. <laughs> yeah, I think the foreseeable future, I'll just be uh, straddling between Taiwan and uh, U.S. market with a lot of focus on the U.S. market, but, you know, with a, a foothold here as well, too, because I think there's, um, you know, not only my wife is here and we have a house and stuff, whatnot. There's just a, I think there's a lot of uh, opportunities here in Taiwan, again, in the sports entertainment type world. I'd love to be involved to some degree. Mm. Um, so just kind of can get my feelers in that space, see where it comes out. But the U.S. market right now with the, the way video commerce and shoppable video and stuff is going, I'll spend, you know, a good amount of my time working on that project for the next little while. Mm. So, okay, beautiful. So 
yeah, I look forward to that. We will continue this conversation off the air as well. Uh, maybe go catch a basketball game. Enjoy this wonderful wine as well. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I definitely look forward to that and want to thank you so much for coming in here and sharing these incredibly valuable insights from this amazing long experience that I think is very unique in the world. Not many people can say they lived in <laughs> Shanghai during this time and doing the things that you've done. So right. thank you so much for you know writing this book and coming here to share those stories and insights with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really been a big fan of your your podcast and the work you're doing and stuff as well too. So I'm glad we were able to meet through the Gold Guard program and it's very valuable to be able to meet and, and get to know you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ron. Thank you so much, Kane. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day and we will see you again next time. Until then, peace. peace, peace, peace.